0: Have you ever met your nemesis? Have you ever met your match? Have you met an arch rival who, no matter how hard you try, you can never seem to compete with them? Maybe it's their wealth, their intelligence, their humor, their beauty, their business acumen or another area of their life, that if you compare yourselves with them, they always seem to get the upper hand. For instance, just consider what it would be like if Lord Alan Sugar of the TV show The Apprentice were to square up against US Republican uh, presidential candidate Donald Trump. Who do you think would hear the words, ''You're fired first? Or if Craig Revel Horwood, who has the reputation of being Mr. Mean on Strictly Come Dancing, was to come up against the ex-factor Simon Cowell, who would come out as the ultimate baddie or perhaps the biggest clash I can think of, and I'm giving away some of the secrets of our HTC staff retreats away here, well, it comes when we go away together in order to think about the church term ahead. Now we can be as nice as pie with each other uh, during the day, but oh, when the evening comes and it's time for the evening staff quiz, then the pits of the fiery and determined uh, admin and operation team are on one side, and it's against the superior wit and intellect of the clergy and mission uh, <laughs> team on the other. And you know, I'm going to pay for that comment tomorrow. Uh, um, ugly scenes are guaranteed to follow. Bribing. Lying, cheating, distracting, nothing is off limit as long as your side wins. So what's all this squaring up against what another got to do with today's passage? Well, last week we heard from Bishop Andrew as he came to speak to us that he described Jacob as a willful, ambitious, scheming, devious and smooth man. But this week, Jacob meets his match, his nemesis, in a relative called Laban. Laban turns out to be even more willful, ambitious, scheming, devious and smooth than Jacob. And the consequences for the whole family turn very ugly indeed. Last week from chapter 28, do you remember how Jacob dreamt of a stairway to heaven during which he received the same wonderful promise from God that his, father Ab- uh, that his uh, grandfather Abraham and father Isaac had received? All people in the world would be blessed through his offspring and God would be with Jacob wherever he travelled. But it's evident that from chapter 29, Jacob has still much to learn about what it means to live under God's blessing. Because here in chapter 29, Jacob no longer has his eyes fixed on God above, on the Lord's beauty, but instead is all consumed with the earthly beauty of Rachel. It's no accident that in the first 30 verses of chapter 29, God is not mentioned at all. Then when God's name does appear in verse 31, it's found on the lips of Leah, who whilst acknowledging God above, is actually looking for love in the wrong place, in the arms of someone who will never love her back. So the ugly scenes we see in today's passage tell of what happens when humans prioritise their own concerns ahead of their concern for God. The Bible shows through narrative story the ugly consequences when God is left to play second fiddle in our lives. So we shouldn't be surprised if the patriarchal society where polygamy is accepted is culturally offensive to our ears. It's supposed to be that way. Whenever polygamy, or even worse in this case, bigamy, appears in the Bible, trouble is always the result. Neither does the Bible shy away from speaking into the painful situations 4,000 years ago, which remain equally raw and real in our lives today. The Bible recognises that outside the Garden of Eden, outside God's perfection, our lives will always be filled with trouble and tears. Consequently, Justin Welby, who was in the news earlier this week, is not the only one who sometimes doubts what God's up to. At some point, we find every biblical prophet questioning God's ways too. So if you ever found yourselves a bit confused and lost about why God's chosen people seem to get it so wrong so often, just remember that the grand sweep of the book of Genesis... It's not about the faith of Abraham, nor any of his sons. It's about the faithfulness of God to an unfaithful people. So in order to see how God is faithfully working his purposes out in all the mess, now we need to dive into some of the ugliness of chapter 29. Firstly, we're going to look at Laban's deceit of Jacob, and secondly, we're going to look at Leah's unrequited love so Laban's deceit of Jacob the first thing to know about Laban is that this is not the first time we've met him previously when Abraham sent his servant to look for a wife for his son Isaac and found Rebekah there by the well Laban who was Rebekah's brother saw the dowry gifts the dowry gifts that were brought so now One generation later, when Isaac's son Jacob comes north to marry one of Laban's daughters, Laban's rubbing his hands, thinking, now it's my turn to become rich. However, Laban is soon disappointed. In verse 13, when Jacob pours out his heart to Laban, telling how he's deceived his father and how he's forced to flee from his brother Esau, the power dynamics Completely change. Laban realises that Jacob is completely at his mercy. Jacob has no wealth to offer a diary gift for a bride in return. So after a month has passed and Laban's uh, mind's been busy whirring away, scheming about what's to be done, Laban's question to Jacob in verse 15 comes with a sense of foreboding. Should you work for me for nothing, Jacob? Tell me, what should your wages be? Meanwhile, Jacob's just grateful to have a safe roof over his head. And in the meantime, he's come be- completely besotted with the lovely, informed Rachel. In the guiddish of love, and unaware of any potential trickery, Jacob responds by offering to Laban seven years' worth of work in order that he might receive a bride, Rachel, in return. Now, the normal bride price for a marriage at this time equated to three and a half years' worth of work. Jacob offered twice the growing rate, In our day, that would be the equivalent of offering a huge diamond ring. Picture the scenes in Hello! magazine when you see the gleaming diamonds that they have. And you get the picture. Jacob is being extremely extravagant here. Jacob's so consumed with thoughts for Rachel that seven years of working for Laban now simply fly by. Then in verse 21, when Jacob's time is complete, he gets straight to the point with Laban. Give me your daughter Rachel. I want to sleep with her. Now this is hardly a strategy I would recommend for anybody meeting with a potential father-in-law. And we know what happens next. Laban arranges a celebration feast for all the people in the village. And when the darkness of evening falls and Jacob has possibly had a little bit to drink, Laban brings his veiled daughter to Jacob's tent in order that the marriage rites might be fulfilled. This time, Jacob's rubbing his hands. This is going to be one of the best nights of my life, he thinks. This is until he wakes up in the morning and realizes Leah is lying next to him. Now it's become a complete disaster. Jacob immediately goes to confront Laban about his wicked treachery. Why have you done this to me? Why have you deceived me so? How could you take advantage of your own flesh and blood? Does this ring any bells? Jacob's deceit of his father, Isaac should be fresh in our minds. Just as blind Isaac was previously tricked into blessing his son Jacob instead of Esau, now Jacob has fallen victim to a similar scheme. Laban responds with a wry smile, no doubt. It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Surely you, Jacob, should know this is the proper order of things. Heavy irony in the extreme. And just as Isaac couldn't undo his blessing on Jacob, so too Jacob can't undo his marriage to Leah. One commentator imagines a conversation the next day between Jacob and Leah. Jacob says to Leah, I called out Rachel in the dark, and you answered, Why did you do that to me? Leah says to him, your father called out Esau in the dark. And you answered, why did you do that to him? Jacob's fury is forced to die on his lips. In the end, however, Jacob does offer, uh, Laban does offer Jacob a little solace. If you're prepared to work for another seven years, well, you can marry my second daughter, Rachel, after you've finished, of course. Leah's bride all week. And before you know it, Jacob's got two wives who are sisters and their respective female servants in tow. Happy families and easy life. This is not going to be. So what are we to learn from the story of Jacob's treachery and deceit? This is important to remember that even in the midst of all the mess, God's hand of blessing never left Jacob. God promised to watch over Jacob wherever he went, and this wouldn't change. However, as the old adage goes, God loves you as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you this way. You see, God has plans for Jacob. If Jacob was to go and be the blessing to the entire world, then some of his character flaws needed some serious ironing out. Jacob, the deceiver, needed to feel for himself what it was like to be the one who was deceived. Only then would Jacob's stubborn heart begin to change. God was prepared to use someone as nasty as Laban to shape Jacob into the person he needed to be. God refines those he loves. I was recently on a holiday in Milford-on-Sea, just south of the New Forest, with my family, and we decided to take a day trip to the Isle of Wight. After a quick stop, uh, when we got off the ferry in Yarmouth, we took a bus to Allen Bay. If any of you have been to Allen Bay, then you may know there's a glassworks there, near to the needles on the southwest corner of the island. Well, uh, when we were in the glass showroom, um, all of a sudden, uh, it was around lunchtime, Isabel, our youngest daughter, became quite anxious and it was clear that she wanted some food. And so, uh, Kaz very generously decided that she would uh, go and get Isabel settled in the high chair whilst Hannah, my oldest daughter, and I followed on. But on the way, Hannah and I couldn't help but stop and look at the glassworks. We were transfixed as we watched the people shape the vases. We sat amazed at how a lump of molten glass is gradually blown, shaped and transformed into a beautiful uh, vase using a combination of different hand tools. And all this must be done at exactly the right temperature in order for it to be moulded into the right and perfect shape. During this process, though, the unfinished vase starts to cool down. And when this happens, it becomes impossible to properly shape. This means the glassmaker had to reinsert it into the kiln at 1,080 degrees centigrade. In this way, the refining process could continue. And this process goes on until the glassmaker is satisfied that the vase is looking just right. I'd never appreciated before how much time, skill, effort and vision went into making a beautiful vase. Well, it was only after Hannah and I had finished watching the glassmakers at work that I realised we'd forgotten about Kaz and Isabel. I was about to experience some serious (laughs) heat. Only joking. Um, But what I'm trying to say here is that occasionally God refines us in hot and uncomfortable circumstances we'd rather not bear. And sometimes, like Jacob, but I stress to you, not always God can confront us with the truth of what it feels like to be on the receiving end of our own sin. At such times, rather than lashing out against a situation or another person, what God requires of us is to take a deep look within our own hearts and realize how our sinful actions affect the, sin, uh, the situations we find ourselves in. If such reflections prick our conscience and leave us with feelings of guilt or shame, then that's not necessarily a bad thing. This is the beginning of a journey of repentance in order that we might go on to experience the release of God's powerful forgiveness. It's not God's intention that we remain in a place of sorrow, but it can be the hot furnace God uses to bring us to the right temperature, ready to be shaped by him a little bit more. You see, God has a clear vision of who you can become and his desire is to shape you into something beautiful for him. So it could be that you're experiencing difficult circumstances, uncomfortably hot things are happening right now with work, family, or friendships, and you recognize that you've had a role in bringing the situation about yourself. Or it could be you're experiencing heat from others and you've no idea why you're being treated this way. Sometimes it just seems that life slaps us around the face and we can't comprehend why things are happening to us. In either case, the circumstances you face will shape you, will form you in some way. The choice you have to make is whose hands are you going to be shaped by? When you feel like you're in the hot furnace, will you you lift your concerns to God above, seeking to be shaped by his love, skill, and care? Or will you let the convictions and expectations of a self-centered society that can never truly love you back determine who you become? Because now as we move on to look at the relationship between Jacob and Leah, it's clear that Leah was looking for love in the wrong place. Leah sought love in a person who would never love her back. And this shaped the whole trajectory of her thoughts and her actions. So let's now look at Leah's unrequited love. Early on we learn that Leia has weak eyes or delicate eyes, as it says in the footnotes to verse seventeen. The sense here is of a person who has become withdrawn through the circumstances of her life. Growing up of the daughter of Laban, Leah has been starved from human affection. Even more than most fathers of the time. Laban saw Leah as a financial commodity to be tra- to be traded for his own benefit rather than a daughter in need of his love. No matter how hard Leah tried to please her father, nothing she did ever seemed to bring him joy and put a smile on his face. And so under this constant rejection, she retreated, withdrawn into her shell. And so I imagine it's with this longing to be loved by another person that Leah became her father's accomplice in his scheme to trick Jacob into working for him another seven years. Leah hoped to find love in the arms of Jacob, but unfortunately for her, this could never be. For as we know from verse 30, Jacob loved Leah, sorry, Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. And so begins the story of Leah's unrequited love. Now, I can't pretend to fully comprehend verse 31, other than to say God's working his big picture out, as we'll see later on. But it's clear from verses 31 to 35 that Leah thinks if she can just give Jacob male heirs, then he'll love her back in return. This thought pattern dominates and shapes all she goes on to do. So after the birth of Reuben, which means the Lord has seen my sorrow, she says, surely my husband will love me now. She names her second son Simeon, which means one who hears, because she believes that this time the Lord has heard she is not loved. After her third son Levi, which means attached, Leah declares, now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. But the brutal truth is Leah is never going to be able to earn her way into Jacob's affections by having more sons. It's only when Leah begins to confront the painful reality that she's able to lift her eyes from her earthly situation and look towards God. She sees that only he can give her the affirmation she needs. When Leah begins to be shaped and formed by this truth, then she's enabled to name her fourth son Judah, which means praise. As she decides, this time I will praise the Lord. Through this unfortunate and messy journey, Leah learns an important lesson. You see, whilst Leah invoked the name of God during the birth process of her first three sons, God was never Leah's first priority. Leah's greatest desire was always that Jacob would offer her the love and affections she so craved. Of course, it was never wrong for Leah to want to receive love and affection from her husband. It was natural and right that she should feel this way. But when Leah let the circumstances of her life turn what would have been a very good thing into the ultimate thing, her unrealized dreams led her down into the depths of despair. It was only when Leah lifted her eyes to God that she experienced the inner joy and peace and felt able to praise Tim Keller, in his excellent book, Counterfeit Gods, sums up much of what's happening here. Listen to what he says. The human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them, making them like God, as the center of our lives, because we think, they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment. He goes on. If anything in the world is more fundamental than God to your happiness, to your meaning of life, then this thing has become an idol. It has supplanted God in your heart and in your affections. You will pursue that thing with an abandon and intensity that should be reserved for God. So now I have an uncomfortable question for all of us here. What is the ultimate driving force of your life? What is the main priority that shapes all the decisions you make? Let me give you time just to think through An answer to that question now? Now I want you to ask the question of yourself. Can it bear the weight of all the expectations you place on it? Are you being fair? If it's your career, what happens when somebody gets promoted? Ahead of you. If it's your partner, are your unrealistic expectations of the love that they should be giving you crushing him or her? If it's your children, do your dreams for their academic success leave them feeling the only way they'll really be loved is if they achieve those grades? If it's popularity, what happens if somebody comes along who's even more adorable than your good self. What damage we do to ourselves and to those around us when we order our world with someone other than God in the ultimate number one spot. When we turn good things into ultimate things, everything is put out of shape. Life gets ugly and distorted, and we live out our lives in opposition to God. Things don't happen as God intends them to be. Pride, envy, malice, and violence take over, and we see the consequences of living in such a world today. So, when we look at the news headlines, it's tempting sometimes to think that God has simply abandoned this world. We're filled with much pain and despair. But there's good news in this story of Jacob and Leah. The truth is, if we follow Leah's life and her offspring through to its completion, then we find great cause to look to God in praise and hope. Because in the midst of the unhappiest of biblical marriages between Leah and Jacob, we find out that Leah, who was withdrawn and unloved by men, becomes the form of, her, of six of the tribes of the people of Israel. And two of her sons are absolutely pivotal in God's salvation plan. From Leah, Levi is born. Levi, who becomes the great-grandfather of Moses, who led God's people out from their slavery. And even more exciting, as we enter the season of Advent, it's from the wine of Leah that Judah is born. And from Judah, we get Jesus, God's Messiah and our Lord. Jesus who who entered into the ugly and messiness of our lives in order to restore God to the number one place in our hearts. Jesus who, in the words of Isaiah, had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Jesus was the one that God used to restore our relationship with God above. Jesus who was despised and rejected by men. when he died on the cross, was the one who, when we see from God's purposes above, came to die in order that we might live. And when Jesus rose again on the third day, he defeated our ultimate nemesis, death, so that we, this Christmas, can remember in the birth of Jesus We have eternal life in him. So in summary, if you're going through a hot and uncomfortable time, it's a good chance for reflection to think, how might God form me during the situations I'm facing? It might lead us to repentance but it should certainly lead us to look to God and ask, how can I be formed by you? Or if you've prioritized something other than God as first in your life, then what might it mean this Christmas to truly look at God's Son, Jesus, and see what his life might mean for you? Let me pray.